you'll please stand with me, grab your Bible, open it to John chapter 1, going to be reading verses 35 through 51. John 1, 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard Jesus speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father, you are amazingly good to us that you have called us with this clarion call to come and see, that you have regenerated our hearts and filled us with your Spirit that we might be able to come and see. Father, work once again through your Spirit in our hearts and our souls. Give us eyes to see once again. We pray this in Jesus' name. You can be seated. We now come to the third day of the week of the new creation that John is giving us in this gospel. On the first day, verses 19 through 34, the ministry of John the Baptist was described to us. God isn't seen during this day, but he is clearly the motivator, the creator and director behind the scenes as John the Baptist has revealed to us and tells us why he came. 
which is to reveal the Christ and to testify that he is the Son of God. Verse 19. Well, verse 29 dawns a new day, the second day. And it is during that second day that God, in the incarnate Son, is revealed to humanity, as the Baptist proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, fulfilling his ministry and its purpose as revealed to us in verse 31, when he says, But for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. The third day begins again with a brief focus on John the Baptist. Only now, just like on day one in verse six, he is not given the title Baptist. It's just John. Just like in verse six, the reason that he is not given the title is because the focus wasn't on him. He is merely a witness to the one who we are supposed to be focusing on. The same is true here in our verses. Since this is true, it's fitting then that our verses begin with John fulfilling his ministry by revealing the Christ to Israel, by pointing two of his disciples to Jesus. These two men had been with John the Baptist the day before. The day before when he had baptized Jesus. The day before when the Spirit descended like a dove and remained on Jesus. The day before when the voice from the Heavenly Father was heard proclaiming, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.17 These men were there. They saw, they saw all of this. They heard all of this. They knew the ministry and purpose of John the Baptist, why he baptized, why he called people to repentance, and who he was making straight a path for. And when Jesus came, when the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins, not of just Israel, but of all the world, when he showed up, these men stayed with John. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. John was just like any real preacher of the gospel. He knew that his disciples were not his disciples. He knew that he was not the shepherd of his flock. He was merely the under-shepherd of the true shepherd, and that those men were not his they belonged to the Lord. Knowing this, he does what all good under-shepherds do. He points the sheep to the shepherd. Here we're told that John the Baptist was standing with two of his disciples. It was late in the afternoon. Why are they standing there? Why was it just these two men? Had these two men come to John to talk to him about what, what was next on his agenda? Or had John called them out, separated them from, from the rest of the disciples to have a talk with them? Did they come to John to ask him questions about life, about the meaning of life, about the meaning of their lives? We just don't know. But what we do know is that this verse, like verse 36, focuses on John, on John seeing Jesus. 
and then on John doing something completely unnatural. He doesn't welcome Jesus. He sees him, but he doesn't say, hey. He doesn't even address Jesus. He just points these two men to the Son of God. What John proclaims is the perfect answer to any question that these two men could have been asking him. Whatever they had learned from this man John, this was the final and most eternally important direction that he could ever give them. It was the ultimate lesson on what is really important in life. Verse 36, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Behold, the Lamb of God. John, why are we doing all of this? Behold, the Lamb of God. John, we feel like there's something missing in our lives. Behold, the Lamb of God. Boys, there's something in this life that is more important than this ministry. This ministry to people. Behold, the Lamb of God. The proclamation of Jesus as the Lamb of God this time is focusing on the person of Jesus and not on the ministry of Jesus. John knew that he was not what these men needed, that he was not what they should want to emulate. He knew that person was Jesus, only Jesus. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. In verse 37, we get a glimpse into how the Spirit, who is resting fully on Christ, works in the lives of men. These men didn't follow Christ the day before. What was different today? What had changed? Why now were they interested in Jesus? What was different today from yesterday? Why did they now want to follow him? Had they finally decided to follow Jesus? No turning back. No turning back. Had they decided to give him a try? Were they tired or bored with John? Tired of his smelly clothes and just couldn't stand the thought of another meal of locusts and honey? Were they just over it and were now seeking something new and exciting? Whatever the reason, None of these reasons were the final reason why they had any interest in Jesus. Because no one chooses Jesus. No one on their own becomes interested in him. Jesus is very clear about this in John 15, 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So verses 38 and 39. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. 
So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him about they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. From this verse, we know that Jesus just didn't hang out and wait to decide wait for them to decide to follow him. He didn't stop and try to convince them to come to him. He had just walked right past them and kept on walking. Just this truth, coupled with the truth of John 15, 16, destroys the weak-kneed, pasty-faced, whining and begging Jesus that is offered in most American churches. A Jesus that stands hat in hand, asking, pleading you to come to him. A Jesus that is willing to take you and anyone else just as you are, because man, it's lonely at the top. This is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible is fearless. He's a man's man. He scoffs at Satan and all his demons. He takes on the full force of the religious system without even thinking. He stares, unblinking, at pain, suffering, and death and marches straight towards them, knowing that he will conquer them. And he justly, righteously cast all those that oppose him, who are this chaff, into the unquenchable fire. This is the Jesus that is the Christ, the Word, the Lamb of God. And this Jesus turned. This seems like a simple thing, a common thing, a nothing. And yet, when viewed in light of redemptive history, with redemptive prophecy, there's meaning. And the reason that we miss this, that we don't see Jesus turning toward these men as anything special, is because we've forgotten that because of our sin, God has turned away from us. Jeremiah 18.17 tells us, Like the east wind, I will scatter them before the enemy. I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. Micah 3.4 says, Then they will cry out to Yahweh, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face for them because of the evil that they have done. And in Psalm 80, which is the, a, the prayer of a saint that is part of the group that God has turned his back on, he cries out, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Yahweh, God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Verses 3 through 7. And what is the prayer of this suffering saint? That's told to us in verse 14. He says, Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. What we see happening today in our verses is the fulfilling of prophecy given in the Old Testament. Zechariah begins his prophetic book to the exiled Jews with this call. Therefore, say to them, 
Thus declares Yahweh of hosts, Return to me, says Yahweh of hosts, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Verses one, chapter 1, verse 3. Malachi echoes the same call in chapter 3, verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says Yahweh of hosts. Well, doesn't this go against what I just said earlier about these men, these men not being able to choose Jesus, that Jesus chose them? Well, this is where we need to make sure that we don't get confused and think that God's commands are his empowerments, that God would never demand something of us that we can't do, thinking that if he did, that it would be unjust. Well, here's an illustration of why it's not unjust to command something that a person can't do. A sentry that is commanded to open the gate for his, for his commander when he returns has an obligation to fulfill this command. That commander warned this sentry in advance that there was a 14-foot deep hole close by and told him not to go near it. As soon as the commander left, the sentry walked over and jumped into the hole. He couldn't get out of it, but his obligation still stood. He was supposed to obey his commander and open the gate when he returned, but now he couldn't. But the sentry still had the obligation that he could not fulfill. This is an analogy. While good, it's not really accurate. Us returning to God is more like the sentry taking a gun and shooting himself in the head rendering himself completely unable to return because he had killed himself. To fulfill his obligation, he must be made alive once again. This is what has happened to the men who started to follow after Jesus. Just as in verse 19 through 34 of this chapter, God is the unseen provider, director, and author these men have been made alive once again. Alive in Christ, by Christ, and for Christ. The question that Jesus asked them is very open-ended, very leading, and the response has, been guard has garnered much ridicule throughout the centuries by people who should know better. He said, what do you seek? We think that they should have said, you. We think that they should have said, true meaning of life, or something else that was deep or spiritual. But their response, Rabbi, where are you staying? Was not given to find out if Jesus was a Hilton Honors member, or if he had gotten a really good deal at the local hotel. First of all, how sad is it that they even had to ask this question? Everyone knew where Herod was staying. Everyone knew where Caesar was staying. But these men had to ask where the king of kings was staying. But they really weren't trying to find out the location that Jesus was sleeping at. Jesus asked, what do you seek? Their focus and the emphasis of their response is found at the center of the question that they asked him. Where are you 
staying at. You was truly what they thought. What they were saying in this question is that they were all in. They wanted to go with Jesus, wanted to be with him, no matter where he is staying. You lead and we'll follow. What they are asking is, Lord, can we come with you? Come stay with you? Let's not rush past the humanity in these verses. These men knew who they were. They knew that if this man, Jesus, was truly the Messiah, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, they had no right to follow after him or even to speak to him. And yet, their hearts had been knit to this man. They wanted to be with him, to know him. They could do nothing else. They were taking a risk. They were putting themselves all out there. And Jesus had every reason to just keep on walking. He had every right to just ignore them, to shun them completely. That's why his response in verse 39, come and see, is amazing. I don't know if there are three words in the Bible any better than these three. There's freedom packed in these words. There's life found in these words. Restoration, love, peace, joy, and true happiness are all found in these words. Come and see. These men have returned to the Lord. And the Lord has returned and turned to them. Prophecy has been fulfilled. Restoration with God has happened. The new creation has begun. All because of the Christ. The Christ of these three words. Come and see. This is the clarion call of the Lord to all that he loves. There are none that come that are not called. And there are none that are called that do not come. And when we do come, just like these men, we are accepted. We're brought home. Verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Proof that these two men were truly seeking for the Christ is found here in these verses. For in them we're told that they followed Jesus. And Andrew did what followers of Jesus do. He confessed to his brother that they had found the Messiah. Now the name of the first person in verse 40 is never given to us. Did John not know who this person was? The answer to that question has to be obvious. He did know. Then why didn't he give, his, give us his name? Was this guy a derelict? Maybe a blasphemer or a false disciple? No, that would be Matthew, Peter, 
and Judas. The reason that this man is not named is because the author was not interested in bringing any attention to himself, especially when it was connected with Jesus. Because of the first-hand testimony of this gospel, we can be sure that this first disciple is John himself. The second person is Andrew. We are told that Andrew is one of the disciples that was most closely attached to Jesus. He was one of the four disciples who came to Jesus on the Mount of Olives to ask about the signs of Jesus' return at the end of the age in Mark 13.30. He was the one who brought Peter to Jesus. He's the one who brought the boy with the loaves and fishes to Jesus, John 6, 8. And when Philip wanted to tell Jesus about certain Greeks seeking him, he told Andrew first, John 12. Every time that Andrew is spoken about, he's always bringing somebody to Jesus. I've always been intrigued by the statement that Andrew made that they had found the Messiah. They didn't find him. He found them. He was never lost. They were. And yet, there's an excitement within this statement that can't be denied along with a personal emotion. Andrew's heart was knit to Jesus. Jesus was his Messiah. Yes, he was the Messiah, but the important thing to Andrew, that he was his Messiah. And Andrew's desire was for his brother to actually come to know Jesus as his Messiah too. This is the heart of an evangelist. This is the heart of a disciple. This is the heart of a man who has been born again. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You were Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. He brought Simon to Jesus. Can there be anything better that you can say about a person, ever? He brought his brother to Jesus. Andrew wasn't trusting in his ability to convince his brother about Jesus. He didn't try and convince his brother of anything. He didn't try to hype up Jesus. He just brought his brother to Jesus. Knowing that this Jesus had affected him like none other. And this from a man who had just come to Jesus himself. Who had a very shallow and incomplete understanding of Jesus and his salvation. And yet he still brought his brother to him. And this verse is important in the new creation narrative that John has developed within the first chapter of the gospel. Here, now, Jesus does what he has always done throughout redemptive history. Something that we see often in the Old Testament. He looks at a person and changes their name. He did this in Genesis with Abram. He said, you will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make 
nations of you, and kings will come from you. Genesis 17, 4-6. He did this with Sarai, the wife of Abraham. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. Genesis 17, 15. He does this again in Genesis 32. This time with Jacob, changing his name from Israel, or changing his name to Israel, which means God with us. And if there's ever any evidence that God uses broken vessels for his purposes, it was Jacob. This man had seemingly zero godly qualities. He wasn't a strong man. He wasn't an honest man. He never even kept his word. All these things can be evidenced by his first name, Jacob, the heel snatcher. But God. And now he's looking at a man who also had multiple character flaws, much like Jacob. And just like with Jacob, God tells him what he will become. Not because of anything that he had done, not because of anything that he would even do within himself. Simon was Peter. He would become Peter because Jesus had determined that he would. And something else has changed within our story. In verse 36, we're told that John was looking at Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now the Lamb of God is now looking at the son of John. The son of John on whom the Lamb of God would build his church. His church would not be built by the strength or character of Peter, the rock, but on the Lamb of God. There was nothing within Simon that he would develop to become this rock. He wouldn't become proficient at the latest leadership courses. He wouldn't take anger management courses to finally overcome his emotions. It was Jesus that changed his name, and it would be Jesus that would make him into Peter. Verse 43, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. This is now the fourth day of the ministry of Jesus. On the third day we saw Jesus calling disciples based upon the witness of the Baptist. In this verse, we are told of the only disciple that Jesus personally calls, at least in this gospel. Why did Jesus decide to go to Galilee? We aren't told, but we are told that it was decided by him on this day. The significance of this statement is that Jesus, like us, was not a robot. Just because God is sovereign and orders all things within his creation, that he has control over all things, doesn't make us, or Jesus, animatronics, not having personality or will. Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and there he found Philip. And then, and there, he gave Philip the command to follow me. Philip, coincidentally, was in Galilee at the exact time and spot that Jesus showed up. 
Coincidentally, he had been given the heart to desire God and was prepared for the moment that the command was given him to follow Jesus. And he obeyed. This should be great comfort for us. Those who are the disciples of Christ. We never have to wonder if we are ever outside of the will of God. Ever. We don't have to wonder daily where God would have us go, what he would have us do. We can rest assured that everything that happens was exactly what was supposed to happen. Every time. Verse 44. Now Philip was from Bethesda, the city of Andrew and Peter. Man, do I love Philip. Philip was from Bethesda, which literally means fisher's home. And knowing this, we can surmise that he probably knew Simon, John, and Andrew, since they were from there as well. But that's not why I love Philip. Whenever there is a list of the disciples given, Philip is always mentioned fifth, behind Simon, Andrew, James, and John. In this gospel, we are told that it was he who stated the, that obvious fact to Jesus that even if they didn't have 200 denarii, they couldn't buy enough food to feed the 5,000 people in chapter 6, verse 7. It was he who had no idea what to do with the Gentiles, those Greeks, that came to him and told him that they desired to see Jesus of chapter 12, verse 21. And it was Philip who, right after Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. It was Philip that came out with, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Philip wasn't the brightest light bulb. He wasn't the most colorful crayon in the box. He may actually have been a few sandwiches shy of a picnic basket. In other words, he was just like me, and maybe like you too. And yet, he is the only disciple in the Gospel of John that we are told that Jesus personally calls. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him in whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Here, once again, we see a disciple doing what disciples do, even when they still have incomplete and imperfect knowledge concerning Christ. They bring people to him. When Andrew went to his brother, Simon, he told them that they had found the Messiah. Now, here, Philip goes to Nathanael and tells him that they have found him, the one that Moses and the law spoke of, such as in Numbers 24, 17, or Deuteronomy 18.15, or Deuteronomy 18.18-19, 18, which says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I my, my, myself will require it of him. And him, who the prophets wrote about, such as Jeremiah 23, 5, and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. 
In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. Yahweh is our righteousness. Jesus would later reaffirm the truth that all scripture, scripture is written concerning him as he walked on the road to Emmaus. He said in Luke 24, 17, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He would go on a bit later in Luke 24, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that whatever, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that the repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. Verse 46, But Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Nathanael wasn't an easy sell. His main opposition to, to what Philip had told him was where this guy came from. This guy who was supposedly the fulfillment of all scripture. He came out of Nazareth. We're never told really much about the town of Nazareth, but it must have been a real podunk kind of place because even after the ascension of Christ and the birth of the church, the early followers were mocked as being called that Nazarene sect in Acts 24, 5. And Philip may not have been the sharpest tool in the shed, but he gave that which he had received. He told Nathanael the same thing that Jesus told the first disciples. Come and see. Verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael may have been skeptical, but he didn't allow his skepticism to keep him from finding out for himself if Philip was right or not. He may have been wrong about his bias against Nazareth, but he was more interested in finding out if Philip was right about the Messiah, the fulfillment of all scripture walking among them. He started walking. He may have been given the invitation to come and see, but soon he would be the object of observation by the one that sees all things. The declaration by Christ concerning this man affirms what Nathaniel wanted to believe about himself. Not that he was seeking religious authority or status. He wasn't looking for the latest and greatest thing to fulfill his, his needs or his excitement. He wanted to know the Lord, the true and living God that he knew from the scriptures. Paul in Galatians 6, verses 1 through 16 tells us that the true Israel is compromised of those who worship their Lord with full awareness of their sin and full allegiance to his authority. It is the Israel of God that the Baptist came to prepare through his purification. And in the book of Revelation, in the end, the Lamb of God will be surrounded by true Israelites from every tribe tongue and nation, robed in white, and declaring, 
Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what Jesus saw in Nathanael. He had been given the heart to seek after God. And God was only to be sought in and through Jesus. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. The question by Nathanael was a really good one. Sure, the things that Jesus said about him were things that he hoped were true. But where did this guy get off trying to flatter him by saying such things? Was he just some smooth talker that had won Philip and these men over? And really, pulling the wool over these guys' eyes probably wouldn't have been that hard. How do you know me? The answer that is given him has been the topic of debate for many years. It's the, is the reference of the fig tree meant to be allegorical, referring to the nation Israel, referring to the place of prayer and seeking God? Probably not. Jesus just meant what he said, I saw you. This isn't the only time in this gospel that the omniscience of the incarnate Christ is revealed to us. We also have the story in chapter 4, verse 16 through 18 of the woman at the well. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one with whom you have is not your husband. This you have said truly. So if you had the ability to see miles, people miles away, and to know things about people that only somebody with intimate knowledge could actually know about them, that would make him God. And that's something that most people would argue that John was trying to prove from the very beginning of this gospel. And he was. Jesus was totally God. Hebrews 1.3 The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Colossians 1.15 he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. But, and this is a big but, Jesus was totally human. John 1, 1, John 1 verse 14 means at least this when he says the word became flesh. His humanity became one of the first tests of orthodoxy within Christianity. And we know from Scripture that he was born in Luke 2.7, that he grew, Luke 2.40, that he grew tired, John 4.6, that he got thirsty, John 19.28, and hungry, Matthew 4.2, that he became physically weak, Matthew 4.11, and that he died, Luke 24.36, and that he had a real human body after his resurrection, John 20.20. 20. And finally, we have the summation of all this found in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, that says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus was both totally God and totally man. There's a 50-cent word for this. It's called the hypostatic union. 
But Nathanael was convinced that Jesus was a man. He didn't think that he was talking to a spirit, that Jesus just looked like a man. He was convinced that this was a man. And at the same time, from this one statement, he's also convinced that he was the Son of God. Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You were the King of Israel. There's three titles that Nathanael uses in this one verse in describing Jesus. The first is rabbi or teacher. The skeptical man had very quickly submitted himself to the leadership of Jesus. And through the use of this term, can be seen as desiring to join Philip, Andrew, Peter, and John as disciples of Jesus. And his proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God is something that he would have gotten from places like Psalm, or Psalm 2 in 2 Samuel 7. Through this, Nathanael is proving that he truly was an Israelite indeed. We, because of the Gospels, can look back and connect the dots between verses like this one, and those of the Old Testament. But when Jesus walked the dusty trails of Israel, the coming Messiah was not equated with the Son of God. The third title that Nathanael called Jesus was the King of Israel. The second thing that he called Jesus proved that he was an astute student of the Word. The title that he gives him, the third title, also proved that he was still just a man of his times. Because the the title, King of Israel, was never referenced to the coming Messiah in any scripture. And in fact, even outside of scripture, it was only given to the Messiah who would bring destruction to the enemies of Israel. But having said that, Jesus doesn't squabble over these titles, but instead redirects Nathanael's mind back to the reality of who he is. Verse 50 and 51, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the, on the Son of Man. Nathanael believed because of a miracle of Jesus telling him, I saw you. He responded in faith. And as good as that faith is, it is inferior to the faith that truly sees. The misunderstanding of who Jesus is, found with all, within all the disciples, came from a sightless reading of the scriptures. The Holy Spirit had not yet been given to them, but they had had their hearts regenerated to desire God and have been given the call to come and see. Jesus will tell his disciples later that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, in John 6, 44. These men have been drawn by the Father. They have come, but they are yet to see. But they will. Jesus, Jesus promises to Nathaniel in telling him that he will see greater things. It's not coincidental that while Nathaniel was the last to come, he is the only, I'm sorry, he is the first and only one that we are told believes. The others may have come and may have, to some extent, seen that Jesus is Lord, but they do not yet really see him. Do they, they do not yet really believe. 
And once again, it's not without coincidence that it is Nathaniel who is said to believe. It is also Nathaniel that Jesus said was an Israelite without gall, someone who was seeking truth. Romans 10:17 says, "Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ." If we are truly to see Christ, we must be in His word. In verse 51, we hear Jesus say these words, truly, truly. The word that is used here in the Greek is a Greek word that means to confirm. It's the thing that you said when someone had made a statement that was true. If someone were to say to me that, Tra that Tracy was a great crook, I would say, truly. To repeat this word would be a way to emphasize that. I truly affirm in the strongest possible form that this is truth. This is absolute truth. But there are no circumstances or situations within, within any historical records of anyone ever using it to affirm their own statements. This is the first time that this term is used in the book of John, but it won't be the last, and it's used very often in the synoptics. In the Old Testament, when God spoke or gave a message through the prophets, it was premised with, thus says the Lord, as in Jeremiah 33, 2, which says, Thus says Yahweh who made the earth, Yahweh who formed it and established it. Yahweh is his name. In the New Testament, God no longer speaks through prophets. He just speaks. And when he does, he often does so with what can only be seen as an authoritative preface. Truly, truly. Up until this point, Jesus had been spoken of. We have been told of Jesus, of his coming, of his importance. But for the first time, Jesus speaks and speaks concerning himself and when he does, he destroys all Masonic categories that these men had. He destroyed every box that they had ever created for God. He expands their understanding of the God that they have been invited to come and see. Jesus began this statement speaking to Nathaniel. But when he got to this statement, it was made to all of them. It's made in the plural you, you will see, all of you. And what Jesus says that they would see, would see is found in Genesis 28, verses 12 through 19, which says, And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and, to, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jason, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Yahweh is in this place, and I didn't know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! 
This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of the place Bethel, which means house of God. But there is, however, a new twist to this Genesis account. Jesus says that before they see the angels of God ascending and descending, heaven will be opened. What's that supposed to mean? Well, each of the synoptic gospels speaks about a time when the heavens were opened up. Matthew 3.16, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a, as a dove on, and lighting on him. Mark 1.10, Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening, the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Luke 3.21 Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized, and while he was praying, heaven was opened. Remember the call given to the disciples, come and see? Part of what Jesus wanted them to come and see was the opening of heaven. He wanted them to see God. Jesus, through the incarnation, opened heaven. He has revealed the Father to us. And now, unlike Jacob, we don't see a vision. We see the Son of Man. Because of that, there is no stairway or ladder reaching to heaven. There is no vision of the Lord no covenant promise, and even no Jacob. The story of the latter was never about these things, or even about the one who would be called Israel. It was always about the one on whom the angels would be seen ascending and descending upon. Because of him, we can see God. The question that Jesus asked his first disciples as one that we should each stop and ponder, ponder. What do you seek? Why are you here? These men could not have known that the real home of Jesus was not of this world. They couldn't have known that if they were unwilling to take up their crosses and follow Jesus, that they would never see his home. They could have not known that the path to his home is narrow and that the gate is small. But what they did know was they were drawn to this man. And what they couldn't have known, though, is that this man would fulfill them completely, that he would comfort them, that he would challenge them, and that he would keep them for all eternity. What they did know is that their hearts, their souls, were knit to this man. Is this what you seek? Dear saints, Christ has opened heaven for us. He's opened heaven to us. We have been given the same 
call that was given the first disciples. Come and see. And because of Christ, we now have peace with God. We have been reconciled to him and are given the ability, the right, and even the desire to come. And at the same time, we are given eyes that can finally see him. What an amazing, glorious, and wonderful thing we get to see. Heaven has been opened to us. And the focus of all heaven, the reason for heaven, is what we get to see. It is He that beckons us to come and see. Let's pray.